This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and you're listening to a very special limited series of six episodes called the Conservation Roundtable, where we take a deep dive into conservation news from around the world. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Modern Huntsman. I am the conservation editor on that publication, and you can read more on www.modernhuntsman.com. And welcome back to, at the moment, our final installment. This is episode six of our six-part series, our Conservation Roundtable, where we are bringing uh, intriguing stories from around the planet uh, with me, one of your hosts, Byron Pace, and uh, two of my friends and colleagues. I am Who are so now going to introduce themselves. <laughs> yes, I'm so sad. This is our, uh, our our last one for now. We'll say for now. For now. Maybe, maybe we'll figure out how to keep this going. But uh, I'm yeah. Jess Johnson. I'm with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, and I'm their government affairs director. I'm also a co-founder of Artemis Sportswomen and a board member for 2% for Conservation. And I'm Ford Van Fossen, content and conservation manager at the hunting apparel company First Light. It was well timed. <laughs> and somebody's at the door. <laughs> and my doorbell was wrong. <laughs> you can go get it if you need. I'm going to choose to ignore it. Okay, so we have three more stories, which I have every faith we're going to end up on tangents on. Um, <laughs> Ford, why don't you pick up That's as a, point, a starting right? point? Yeah. Um, so I'm ch- I cheated again. Uh, <laughs> and I actually just... Really, more than the substance, the title of this story caught my eye. I feel eye. like we're going full circle here, are we? I, we are. Full yeah. We are. So, we discussed in the first episode the bison cull going on in uh, Arizona's uh, Grand Canyon National Park. Yeah. And I was, I was actually looking at a couple different stories on Euronews dot green in this circumstance apparently and this uh article jumped out at me why are forty five thousand people signing up to kill a threatened species okay that's a fair question (laughs) but the only the only reason i knew that this was the same story we in fact discussed on episode one was that there's a picture of some damn bison i just thought it, it, the the terminology there is so different than sort of what we had been discussing, right? Which is sort of what I think the three of us would view as a, as a necessary and proper reduction of a herd that's outstripped its carrying capacity to sort of why are a bunch of people going to murderize some animals that there's <laughs> hardly any left of, you know? It's, it's one of those things about headlines uh, really... You know, it's going to suck in certain amounts of people in different ways, and and it's it's all about phrasing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the article I would I would point out is very similar. It's it's pretty non. It's like it was uh, written from the same press release. Exactly. Yeah, but the name except is, Peta get a good a good look in here. I've just noticed. Yeah, it's um. It's just striking to me how we phrase these things, especially, I think, in regard to wildlife. You know, not unlike, I think, issues around feral horses or kangaroo culls or other things we've talked about. It's sort of how you introduce this issue to the wider public that can determine the outcome, right? Or Colorado wolves, it's another very one. Very true. 
Very, Oof. very true. The the language that is used to communicate is so important in terms of how that informs the the outcome in many ways. Oh, there's Absolutely. some yeah, a sponsored slaughter of magnificent. I've just read that. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. The hideous exercise in trophy taking will do nothing to control bison numbers in the long term because such culling in inverted commas is a euphemism for killing only causes animal populations to rebound when the loss of herd numbers results in a spike in the food supply. If killing actually reduced animal populations, lethal methods wouldn't be proposed year after year after year. PETA's director, Ilsa Allen, told Euronews. That's, I'm going I'm I'm to go down one wormhole, maybe, a tangent go. here. But, Slytherin but, down. <laughs> uh, this is this is something, and and I talk about this a lot, and in, in our communications and how powerful language is in in conservation, um, and and in hunting and in hunting PR, uh, just how important it is that we use language uh, responsibly. And I, I've sort of started this maybe push and uh, a personal thing that I. I would like to get done in Wyoming is is removing the word trophy from all of our hunting regulations. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it does us no favors anymore. You know, trophy means a different thing to different people. It has no one definition. Uh, it it can mean things that are management level, or it can mean things that are ego and ethics level, uh, and no one really knows. You know, it, it just opens us to. Uh, knee-jerk reaction and incendiary language rather than, you know, using a different word even. Like, I, I think it would pull a lot of vitriol um, out of responses if we stop calling things trophies. Because uh, it, it just has a bad, it's a negative connotation. I think we do ourselves some favors. And, and this is coming on the coattails of having experienced and been deep into the political side of, of Wyoming proposing a grizzly bear hunt uh, at the delisting oh, of yeah. grizzlies. I was just going to say that, Jess. I think one of the key issues with the grizzly bear hunt was the idea of the trophy aspect of it, right? And, the fact and I think that we you set didn't ourselves have to up. take the meat. Yeah, yep. you didn't have to take the meat. I think that was an egregious misstep. Oh, hugely. Um, and nobody that's thought insane. about it. I didn't know that. That's insane. Well, no. In Wyoming, here's the thing. It's black bears, mountain lions, well, and bears, mountain lions, trophy animals. We actually have a classification. We have wildlife and then we have trophy animals. Trophy animals are like within the trophy zone, wolves, black bears, grizzly bears, mountain lions. And uh, we have exempt trophy animals in the state of Wyoming from the wanton waste rule. Uh, so you don't actually, like if you kill a mountain lion, you don't have to pack out the meat. If you kill a black bear, you do not have to pack out the meat. Yep. You only have to show up with the head and hide, which is just, I think a major failing. And it's, and it's not that, you know, how, it's how just that hunting groups not spoken up like that kind of pisses me off. It's, oh, yeah. I think it's really just been like the good old boy. This is the way it's always been. And it wasn't an issue 50 well, years ago, but we haven't like fixed it. Because, you know, Montana, I think, requires it. And I'm pretty sure Idaho. Does Idaho require pulling meat out? Hell um, no. Bears? Yeah. No, I, and it's a really simple, it is a easy fix. And it's something, and I'll, I'll just, you know, tag it for 
in Wyoming next year, I am planning on bringing a bill to the state legislature to fix this. Um, It may be in pulling trophy out of the regulations, or it might just be requiring that bears and lions, I'm not even going to touch the wolf conversation, but that bears and lions be roped under the wanton waste law and we have to remove the meat from the field um with the exception of if it tests positive for trichinosis just like if a deer tests positive for chronic wasting disease you can legally discard of it that's the same idea we have in idaho next year jess we should should talk some more offline (laughs) (laughs) but i agree i think it's great minds it's just an enormous bit it's of softness in our proverbial underbelly as hunters right it's, and, and, it, and it's, of... it it leaves us open to language like the hideous exercise and trophy yeah. taking you know like it's it's so easy to put a really negative thing because you know trophy's a charged word and and we can we can do a whole series of podcasts based around what trophy hunting means in its variances but wouldn't it be better to just remove it from the conversation, say what we mean, add some like take the meat out of the field and 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 button up sort of our weak spots. Uh Definitely. because that was a, yeah, that was an I, egregious I, misstep on Wyoming's part, at least with the I, I agree. And I know. I agree, Jess. I think what one of the things and we won't go too deep into this because otherwise we won't talk about anything else on the show, but I think one <laughs> of the things that that then points to is the import exports of in inverted commas, trophy products. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this. Uh, and it also, it also ties back to the, the language that hunting organizations use. So we've seen the UK now moving towards banning the import of trophy products from certain species. We've seen the US has already done that from with numerous species. And actually there's uh, underneath... Um, there's also state statewide state regulation like California has much higher restrictions or, or much more restrictions on what you can bring in. Um, Pennsylvania has been moving that way too. Um, but then the question is, well, how how does that affect your ability to carry on doing the the hunting and all of the the implications and good that that can bring in other countries that are outside your own state or your own your own country just because you're now no longer able to bring whatever that memento is back now i can think you bring it's wasteful back? that's my question well no you wouldn't be able to do that you wouldn't be able to do that either i think the thing that what i'm doing a very poor job at trying to get to is that when someone, a country like the US or the UK where I live, bans the import of, say, lions or, or any species, the immediate reaction is, oh, well, the hunting's finished in that country. You, know, mm-hmm. you can no longer go and hunt um, elephants or lions or whatever the species is that's being restricted, which isn't the case. And yet that mm-hmm. is the language that some of the big hunting organizations put out just recently, actually, with the, the the upcoming UK ban, that is not the case. What they're saying is that you can't bring stuff back. There is absolutely nothing stopping you going and doing what you would have always done anyway, because those countries have not banned you entering, and they have not banned hunting. You are just now not, and it's not an ideal situation, I would agree. But I think we need to maybe adapt and evolve a little bit in the same way as you're talking about 
you know, changing some of the wording and, and what that means and how emotive that can that can be. And we need to be careful about our language as well and not insinuate things which are not true. I have seen blatant lies from major organizations recently as they've been reacting to some legislative changes coming in. And it doesn't help because they it's just like mudslinging back and forward. Well, and it's I the think, other thing. You know, there's a moral higher us. ground to take. Yeah, and it opens us to the conversation of like, well, if it did stop people entirely from hunting in these places, then then we've got the the motivation for hunting really wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there therein lies the big question mark, but that's I think that's something for another day, but I think <laughs> that if you read some of the language of some of the press releases in response to these restrictions, it is very very clear to me what the motivation is. And I would say that the motivation, maybe that was appropriate 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's not appropriate today. Like uh, our societies move on and they change. And I think we have a, an, an issue where we are not changing fast enough, particularly when it comes to, and, and don't get, I'm a massive supporter of, of regulated international trade. I think it is very, of, of wild, wildlife products, you know, whether that be timber or whether that be actual you know, mammals or, or mm -hmm. fish for that matter. Um, when it's done well, um, but I'm just saying that it is not—it is not the end of the game when these barriers get put in place, and maybe we need to work with them more. It's about being more honest in our communications. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, you look absolutely. at the language through this whole article that F Ford had, and, and it just—I um, think it's the last paragraph—is is really indicative. Of, of, you know, just to sort of wrap this up, it says adding to this cruel, pointless fiasco is the fact that it can be difficult for hunters to get a clear shot, causing the animals to endure violent, slow, painful deaths. Nature just lies. It's, it's, but that's you, the that's the PETA part. To be fair, that's where, the yeah, actual article. That, that's where you where you sort of that you know harkening back to previous episodes and and our nature is metal conversation. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No, no, you're right. We should just the wolf pack tearing the bison apart whilst still alive is definitely better than the 300 wind mag. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. a poorly shot. Uh, I just. Yeah, it's it's an amazing how separate we are from from reality in a lot of these sort of incendiary comments. Yeah, we are nature, like we are part out. of it, and we need to rem we need to remember that um, when we're having these conversations. Yeah, my favorite quote sure. has been, "We're just animals in pants." <laughs> just animals in pants. Yeah, we're just hairless animals in pants. We're just hairless yeah. animals. <laughs> Awkward, <laughs> weak, hairless animals. Weak. In pants. <laughs> But but quite quite smart in some regards. <laughs> yes, intelligent. So I'm gonna give um, Jess the last the last shout out for this series. So I'm gonna go next and present uh, a story that was in Manga Bay, which is something that I'm I'm very passionate about because I think it is so poorly understood. And this story is called Bad Science. The planting frenzy misses the grasslands for the trees. Uh, lovely uh, nice play on phraseology. Yeah. yeah, really good. Uh, Mongo Bay has, has some great stuff. They actually have a, um, quite an interesting podcast as well. They present a lot of cool news from around the world that you might not hear elsewhere. Um, and essentially, it's quite a long article, this. But if you, if you boil it down, 
they're talking about something that I brought up a couple of times before, which is that in our attempts to curtail our impacts on climate change, there has been this drive, particularly in the last decade, to plant trees and plant trees at insane rates and just everywhere, like they are the sticking plaster that is going to fix all the ills of climate change. Now, and don't get me wrong. Else. I love, yeah, and everything else. I love forests. Forests are amazing. And I love trees. I plant trees as well. I've planted trees in my gardens. But I think that there, there is definitely a. It feels to me like this is an easy political fix to show that governments are actually doing something proactive. Because if you stick a tree in the ground, it's visually there. You can see it. Yes, the government, and they can they can come up with fantastic statistics, like um, where is this number here? Uh, India announced this is in the article <clears throat> that a. Um, uh, a million people planted 220 million trees in a single day. Whoa. And this was um, in the same month that Ethiopia stated uh, that they had planted 350 million trees in a single day. Now, this is great on the face of it, and we all understand how the, 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 the above-ground biomass as trees are growing pulls and locks carbon out of the cycles. It's this fairly sort of basic knowledge that I think has been put in the media so often that most people kind of understand that now. The problem is that we are, in this, in this what they call frenzied drive, we are planting trees in places that they just simply don't belong. And we are also planting trees in many cases that don't even belong in the countries that they're being planted. For a quick gain, we're planting poplar or whatever, which is a bloody ugly tree, which is not much <laughs> used to wildlife. It grows insanely fast um, and is doesn't belong in, in many places. Eucalyptus is another one. Vastly damaging, takes a huge amount of water out of the ground if it's in places that it, it wasn't natively found. And to give you an example of how insane some of these targets are, there was research that was done looking at the forested areas in South Africa back in 1750, which a lot of scientists kind of see as a, 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 the closest baseline they can have of what was it like before we started to ruin the landscape. And they have calculated... <laughs> I asked myself that, that, that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> they calculated that there was 1.16 million acres of forest in oh. South Africa. The targets for reforestation currently sit at 8.9 million acres. So in the same country. So, you know, that's like seven times as much. So what they're saying is that they want to not just reforest, but afforest. And there's a big difference with that. Your reforestation and replacing forests that previously and historically existed in the landscape is one thing. To a forest landscapes that never had trees on them, or, you know, or haven't had for thousands of years, potentially, like the African savanna, which is one of the examples they bring up in here, is completely irresponsible and actually vastly damaging. I well, mean, it, it brings completely a whole changes new ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, it, it's exactly what you're doing. You're engineering something that is more vulnerable in, ter in terms of the African savannas and the grasslands there. It's something that's more vulnerable to fire. It's a landscape that actually needs fire to thrive 
and has, has evolved alongside the species that exist in it. Um, and you're creating these higher, um, higher fuel loads that then burn hotter rather than these kind of cool, quick burns as the, these grasses burn. I, I think and this it's is just a, not. Yeah, it, I'm going to draw a, a line between like planting a tree and shooting a coyote. So stick with me for this really quick. Okay, go uh, for it. But like it's, it's this thing of we're looking for a very simple, we want to. As humans, we want a simple thing that we can do now to make our circumstances better. So planting a tree is is pretty easy. It's not like, you know, it doesn't take a lot of work. We don't really think very hard about it. You go out, you plant a tree. you kind of in the same response of like when people are looking for, for why populations of deer and elk and other things are, are declining or, or why, you know, whatever is happening, it's easier to blame a coyote and go out and shoot a coyote than it is to like face the larger problem in the larger picture. You know, so looking at these, I think this is a, a symptom of a failing of the conservation community and a failing in, in, in our sort of greater communications of science of giving people real tangible fixes to problems um, rather than just handing them like climate change. And then all they hear from that is go plant a tree. <laughs> you yeah, know, I it's, know. It's, and it's, 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 it's down to messaging as well. It's like, it's, I think it's incredibly irresponsible the way the global community has tackled this, the, the tree planting targets and even, and then down a level country, even in Scotland, I've seen this here, like just inappropriate tree planting that is, gonna go that is working counter to what they're actually trying to achieve i've mentioned i actually interviewed the scientist who did it on a separate podcast that was looking at it was a 40-year study that was never intended to show this originally that was looking at tree planting on moorland and they showed that this very low energy environment when you started planting trees in it that would have never been there in any great density before historically despite what uh, despite what a lot of the rhetoric might have you believe um, it's a little bit like worms in the Arctic, which we were talking about a couple of episodes ago with invasive species. It kind of it activated uh, the microbiology in the soil, created a more nutrient-rich environment, and locked away less carbon than if you'd not planted trees there at all. The, the forested areas after 40 years that had been planted had less carbon storage than the areas that had been left alone and mm -hmm. hadn't been planted. And it's the same with these grassland areas that they're talking about. They're saying that you, we really need to be very careful about what the impacts are of our actions. And it kind of, it makes me think, haven't we learned our lessons here? You know, we talked about invasive species, about how we introduce them very often to try and correct mistakes that we had made or introduce them just because we like them. And it never works out. It never works out. There's a big difference between uh, regenerating these landscapes to what they were and sort of remolding them. We're just um, looking so it's for just, that It's just easy. another story of just being careful, being yeah. very careful about what we're trying to achieve. And that the conservation well, answer is rarely the easy one. No. Yeah. And in fact, iron ironically, you know, we were discussing sage grouse recently and sort of the plight of, North America's sagebrush steppe and grasslands. One of the absolute biggest threats to those ecosystems are it's pines, trees. It? Trees. Conifers. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, largely juniper pinion also. Um, but trees, conifer, conifer encroachment, as they call it here in the West, is a major problem. And so much has, so that 
we're going about cutting trees down in places to build better habitat and and more healthy. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, a a somewhat notable study in Oregon um, organized basically the removal of junipers and sagebrush habitat and found. I believe that it increased sage grouse populations by 12%, which is modest, wow. but it's really one of the few success stories we've seen. And that was, <laughs> That's I mean, that lot. was tens of thousands of acres of uh, junipers that were being removed in a very concerted way. And so a lot of conservation work on the ground these days in the West is, is actually killing trees as um, uh, Rick Hutton who I believe oh, yeah. everybody here knows, the uh, fiancé of Katie at Over at My Modern good Huntsman. friend, Katie Marchetti, yeah. Exactly. He says, kill the trees. <laughs> it's just period. Kill more trees is his sort of dictum. And he's a trained forester. You know, I know, well, that's how Rick and I bonded. Yeah. We bonded at a party at Katie's house uh, like two years ago because we were talking about forestry. I had no idea he was like, I mean, I'd never met him before, <laughs> and we started talking. We talking, started talking about forestry, and it was like right in his zone. Oh yeah, he we should loves be sending it. him this uh, this this article for sure. Yeah, yeah, he he would he would be he'd give it a big amen. Bring the chainsaw <laughs> all over it. You know, I feel so like this with that, flows pretty well into what my uh, article is. Oh, this perfect! In a weird setup. Shoot. <laughs> Shoot. So so we're talking about you know reforestation or 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 you know, making sure we're doing things right. And, and my article is, it's labeled metrics or politics. Uh, Biden conservation plan raises questions and it, and it's talking about this, this new administration plan from, um, from the U S uh, that president Biden has rolled out that is called 30 by 30. And I thought this was a really interesting thing to sort of talk about and to end on because it has a really different, there's a lot of ways to interpret this. And this is where these questions are coming from. So, so the general idea is that we concern 30% of the nation's land and water resources by the year 2030, which seems like a pretty easy thing to support. Um, the, the problem that we've hitting to is, is, is where is this mismessaging going and, and what is this actually saying? Uh, because there's not a lot of clarity or definitions around it. You know, they're not saying like, what is conserving 30% mean? Is it, does an easement uh, count or, or does expanding a city park count? Like what is the actual nuances of this 30% of the nation's land and water resources? Um, and, and the other pushback is, is a lot of people are going like, well, like, you know, you guys are, you this is great for you to all say, but, um, you know, I, I know from Wyoming Wildlife Federation's perspective, we're looking at this going, well, great. This is, we've already been doing this. We've been doing this for 84 years. This is nice that you're highlighting it, but like the work doesn't stop. <laughs> um, and, and so it's been this interesting conversation that is brought up and, and obviously you have one side that's like, does 30% mean it's all wilderness? Is it all protected? Like, what does that actually mean? And so it's raised a lot of discussions on, on, on what this means. Is this a public land, a private land or a state issue and, and how everybody's responding to it. Um, and then the other side of it being is like, you know, at what level are we going, you know, if we want to reach this goal, 
reaching this goal isn't isn't the point. It's doing it well. It's doing it right. It's it's conserving it in a way that is long lasting, not in a way that when the next administration comes through, it undoes it's just everything. Undone. Yeah. Yes. And so that's the problem is where we're like shoving this kind of conservation message down people's throats, which is, you know, like obviously I believe in this. I think it's the right way for our world to go. But we're not having these necessary conversations or these roundtables or these discussions with people who disagree to lay the groundwork of a long lasting sort of relationship. What we're doing is we're setting up ourselves to just be really angry if there's an administration change and a political change that undoes all of this. Um, So it's really brought an interesting sort of uh, thing to the table, at least as far as someone who's been working in conservation pre this administration, in fact, pre the last administration, and and sort of seeing this uh, trend of this pendulum swing. I'm looking at 30 by 30 is like, did we just did we just paint a target on the back of some really good initiatives that that may be undone by simple association with a administration somebody disagrees with? Um, uh, interesting. Yeah. And, and that's that's just politics. It's just politics. And so it's saying, you know, this metrics or politics is like, it, maybe if there's a description of what they mean by 30% and, and if they're roping in and pulling in everybody to the table. So it's not just a conservation initiative, but it's something that, you know, development uh, development can strive for or, or you know, benefit from or, or all of this. It's, it's figuring out what this message actually means and, and making sure that the table yeah. is broad enough to support it. And it, it's so easy for governments to, you, you come up with a number like that. And they, the, the problem is that I find if you look at a lot of these uh, targets and goals is that they, because it is politics and you can't avoid that and terms are very small. They're like three and a half to five and a half years for a lot of democratic countries. And they know that they want to be able to tell people at the end of the term, just when it's time to get voted in again, that they hit these targets. And so how those targets are hit, just as you've explained, just as the tree planting targets are, is kind of arbitrary. And there's often not a lot of detail about really how do you implement this and what's important to consider. They're very broad brush so that they can say, yes, you know, 10% of all our, our marine areas are now protected. But what does that actually mean? Oh, that's absolutely the hinge here. Um, yeah. Is what, it's a great, it's a great marketing headline, right? Um, but what are we doing when we say we're preserving quote unquote nature, right? And, is yeah, that you know- a conservation easement? Is that a national park, a wilderness area? Is that a crop field? What well, is it's, that? It's, it's is that- totally discounting. I mean, this other thing of like, like a, a large portion. I mean, we have a lot of public land in this country. Don't get me wrong, but, but we have an equal and more amount of private land and it's completely discounting. Like, you know, this, this, the, the private land push and, and a lot of, you know, yes, you know, there are, Ranches are selling out west. They cannot hack it. It's being subdivided. It is a problem. It's habitat fragmentation. But the other side of it is that, like especially in the East Coast, most of the conservation initiatives are our private landowner relationships and built in the in benefiting many. But it's the private landowner that's pushing this forward. And you know, how do you talk about this thirty percent 
do we does private land count you know it says the nation's like yeah. land and water conservation so so then are you i mean the other pushback especially from wyoming is like you know the federal government can't tell me what to do with my private land <laughs> <laughs> so so it's an initial like what what are the nuances of it and there are none right now there hasn't been much and so it's speculation has just run wild <laughs> and you know one of the other dangers that i i, I see the and and before I say this, don't get me wrong. I think there's huge va- value in protected areas when done right and when integrating local communities in them. And I particularly like to see where there is also sustain- sustainable use within protected areas. Agreed. But I think one of the dangers is that you create these kind of protected silos, forgetting often, as was proven in a paper last year, looking at protected different both marine protected areas and terrestrial protected areas and looking at how well they were actually connected to any one and any other and only 10 percent were Mm -hmm. so what you end up in that case is you just end up with these islands of protectionism forgetting really about the landscape around it and what we really should be talking about yeah exactly how it fits in is yes we need protected areas because it's great to have greater restrictions in these areas to prevent damaging development but like i say integrate communities within them because then they're going to want to care for them more but we should also be talking about is what do we do with all of these these areas between these more heavily protected areas because that is so important if we want the protected areas to thrive and i fear that this continual focus about having protected reserves really doesn't get to the the key foundation of the future of conservation in my mind it's which not is building. that all of our landscapes yeah. should be we should integrate nature and conservation within them it isn't about putting fences whether those actually be physical fences or on paper um in terms of reserves and protected areas we really need a more integrated approach well, and it's it's going to be by bringing humanity along into this and and integrating nature back into human lives in a more real way. Are we only like that's where we start getting people at the table? It's creating long term solutions, and 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 obviously, you know, I'm I'm clearly supportive of this. It's a conservation initiative. I think it has well meaning, you know, people behind it, and and but it's it's uh, I worry about the long term effects, and and I wish we spent more of our time on creating alliances with people that we may not always agree with, but alliances that build long-term relationships and long-term solutions to to nature and human lives and conservation on the whole, rather than this sort of pendulum swing of administration changes and the politic headline battles. And I, I just like, I'm frustrated by when we, you know, name something 30 by 30, especially, you know, as someone that lives in Wyoming, it's, it's, it's this conversation that's almost over before it starts because it just, it doesn't, it doesn't have the nuance and it doesn't have the relatability for a lot of people. Yeah. Now, Ford, uh, we're getting to the end of this show and I, I believe it's your sound to close oh, yeah. this off. Yep. Well, and as I made a, I made a game time decision to, um, you changed at the last minute. I did. I was <laughs> going to go with a song leopard. Um, and I don't, I mean, that would have been good, but I feel like Byron, you've spent a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa. You probably would have picked that one out. This one possibly 
is a little more interesting because I think there are ties to both of you and Ooh, very much okay. to myself. I'm intrigued. So let me uh, let me pull the headphones here and try and get the YouTube rolling. Is it a deer? It is a deer. Yes. Okay. And I can play is that. It a se- is it a Sika deer? It is a Sika deer. Yes! Yeah. It's the first one we got. <laughs> the first one I've got. No, okay. someone got armadillo last time. Well, after much leading by Jeff. Like, <laughs> there was very little leading there. Well, yeah. oh man. That's such a cool sound. It is, right? It doesn't sound this. It sounds otherworldly. I want to go, and we have them here. Yeah, I want to ground call a Sika in, not not stand hunt one. Well, and I Jess, say, you'll have to come. You'll really? have to come. Yes, yeah. he's coming to no, Maryland no. first, Byron. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we've got. We just need to take the year off and like try yeah. and make up for not being able to go anywhere for COVID and just like go around the world and hunt. Ford, what if we well, just do was, a Sika deer was, tour? <laughs> there you go. That was the relevance to the boths of you because mm. I knew that they had them in the UK, but Jess and I have talked about hunting them in Maryland. And ah. there you go. I've I been see. wanting to do a Sika deer, a, a, a surf and turf in Maryland where you go and bow hunt a Sika deer while also like partaking of the seafood uh while gathering. spoiling crabs alive while spoiling crabs <laughs> steaming, alive. <laughs> steaming crabs alive as we discussed oh there's so many ago. fun things to be done why do we have to work why can't we just do the fun things oh I, I, I would count this series of podcasts on my list of things that have been fun and not work i agree oh, good good i definitely I, I, agree well i think that's a mighty fine note to end this uh this series of six Round oh. table, conservation round table. So thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. It's been an absolute blast. Oh, yeah, this Byron, has been so fun. Us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>